The Charles Adler Show starts now. Welcome to the Charles Adler Show podcast. I appreciate everything that everybody is doing to get on the platform, to hit either subscribe, follow, uh, offer reviews, offer generous reviews, and most generous of all, of course, uh, telling all the people on your list to listen uh, to this podcast. The person that I'm about to bring on uh, as I've done in the past, in the last uh, few weeks, I say the past, we've only been doing this for about a month, but I uh, am honored and, and privileged uh, to bring on someone who was one of the, the stars on the list of people that I used to harness over many years of doing uh, talk radio, and he's someone who was also a colleague of mine uh, in Toronto and, and elsewhere. Uh, he is uh, an author of many books, nearly 20 actually, just hard for me to, to fathom the idea of anyone writing uh, uh, 20 books, even in a very long lifetime, not to mention a very uh, brief one that uh, Michael Korn has had on this earth. He's written a number of newspaper columns, and he wrote one very recently that's gotten him into a lot of uh, trouble with his old conservative faithful. Not that I would know what that's about, but without any further ado, Michael Korn, welcome to the Charles Adler Show podcast. It's a great pleasure, and uh, always such fun to speak with you. I mean, the other thing, of course, that I am is I'm an Anglican priest, and that's um, really <laughs> that's the majority of my work. <laughs> I, for, I forgot all about that. I, yeah, and of, and of those eighteen books, I should add, not many of them are that good. But yeah, the, the, the number's good. <laughs> I think I think they're all great. I think you're eloquent, and of course, I, uh, I I am totally aware that you're an Anglican priest. I wanted to get into that in terms of why this particular column, I mean, so many columns that you've written have recently have angered uh, conservatives, but I think they've gotten a lot angrier uh, since you've uh, developed the, the moral authority of being an ordained Anglican priest. We'll ask you what that is all about, uh, the decision to go into the uh, uh, to, to the church, as it were. Uh, at one time, you were a Roman Catholic. In fact, I think you were a Roman Catholic when I first uh, heard you. And when I first heard you on the topic of uh, uh, same-sex marriage and everything else uh, revolving around uh, particularly gay men, you were rather acerbic. I'm not going to say you were uh, homophobic, but you certainly had a much uh, a dramatically different uh, position uh, on homosexuality than, than you do now. So I wonder if we could start there, um, where you were on, 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 on the subject of uh, gay men and gay sex, because I think uh, that's why you're in uh, so much hot water with uh, some of the, the far right that uh, wants to comment on you. I think they were absolutely enamored of of your ancient position, not very happy with your most recent. So I wonder if we could, I wonder if we could start with about I guess twenty years ago when you were uh, very much um, a Roman uh, Catholic uh, writer and, and commenter, and not one that was embracing uh, the LGBT agenda. Hmm. It's interesting you say that because um, the, the the issue of homophobia. I wrote a column for CNN recently. It's my first column for them actually explaining my change of view, which happened about 10 years ago. And I began by saying, I don't think I was a homophobe, but, and uh, Sven Robinson, the former MP, uh, who is a friend and ally now, he wrote to me very, very, quite beautifully, actually. And he said, I love what you've written. He said, I have to say though, Mike, some of the things that you directed towards me, I think they were homophobic. And I thought about it and he's right. So, yes, I, I supported civil union. I supported full protection for 
for gay people under employment legislation, discrimination, uh, inheritance, and so on. The, the issue was marriage. However, I went beyond that. And I've always said this, that although um, there were people who were far more vehement than me, they weren't always taken very seriously. And there are some rather loud, angry evangelical leaders who have, who spoke out on the issue. But there was me with an English accent, which always gives you an unfair advice. You know, people assume we're clever. Not really. But I, I'm not a fool. So I, I gave a certain sophistication. And I, I also couch the argument in it's just the marriage issue. That's what I'm against. So I think I did more harm than many other people, actually. Um, in my defense, <clears throat> I've never shied away from that. For the last 10 years, I have been absolutely open and contrite and done all I can to try and put matters right. I mean, the, the conversion came about. I, I won't go on for too long about that, but um, I was a Catholic. I mean, in many ways, I still am. I'm an Anglican, but I'm in the Catholic tradition in the Anglican Church. And people say, oh, he's changed his mind on everything. Actually, I've changed my mind on very little. <laughs> it's only a handful of issues, if that. But, you know, they say these things. But it was just... Um, well, I think it was spiritual. I don't want to get too holy on you, but I think it was spiritual. But there were certain incidents. One was a world vision saying that uh, people in, in uh, same-sex relationships were welcome to work for them. A very gentle thing to say. And the way the evangelical world came down on them so hard and really threatened to withdraw all funding. And also it was um, a, a very conservative uh, man, actually, uh, John Baird, who's a friend. And John, when he was foreign minister, had, had simply criticised the Ugandan government, which is still at it, uh, for its homophobic legislation that could have led to the death penalty for being gay. And he said, this is wrong. And I spoke out on TV and said, look, even if we oppose gay marriage, surely we can support John in this. The idea of incarceration and execution, maybe, for being gay is abhorrent. And I thought the Christians would rally round, and they didn't. They were very angry with me. And all these factors came together. At the same time, there were certain um, gay Christians who'd reached out to me. And I had this, this change on that issue. And it, it was a very difficult time because it led to me leaving the Catholic Church. There were, there were lots of there were personal issues um, within the, my family, which I don't want to talk about. It, it, was, it was tough, Charles. I mean, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. There was a financial side. I, I don't really care that much about that. But everything stopped. You know, all of the, I, I think I lost four columns, two radio shows, a TV show, um, and all my speaking engagements. I always laugh when people say, well, he did this for the money. I must look even more stupid than I am because, <laughs> I mean, you, and you know what it's like. If you want to make money in media these days, if you are a fairly articulate right winger, the, everything is open to you. There, there are right wing media platforms opening all the time. And, uh, you know, being a, regard myself as a, a social democrat, Christian socialist maybe. It's a very small window you have to to write. And but anyway, that's what happened. And the column that got me into so much um not trouble in a way, but good trouble, um, was the one I wrote in the Globe and Mail, um, which wasn't really about homosexuality at all. I merely said that pedophilia, which is grotesque, um, should never be minimized. And the far right accuse all of their opponents, including Justin Trudeau and others, um, of being paedophiles, thus minimizing the uh, obscenity of the crime and also libeling people. And I spoke about why the far right did this and this obsession they have and this new movie that's come out and the idea that there's a world conspiracy and, and it just goes too far. And because of that, I received thousands 
of abusive tweets calling me a pedophile, thus pretty much proving my point. But this time around, I mean, I've, I've had these attacks in the past, as you have, and they last about 36 hours generally, and they go. And this one did the same. It's still going a bit, but it's mainly gone. But I, I receive far more death threats. I mean, usually death threats are very, very rare. And I, I, I received seven or eight death threats, pretty graphic. Um, there was one, someone's head being, uh, uh, I don't know where they got that footage from, um, being shot through the head. Now, that guy wrote to me, um, threatening me with a picture of his gun, lots of other things like that, lots of anti-Semitism, because my father was Jewish. And um, partly it was because uh, Gorka, is it, the Trump's former guy? Is that his name? Uh, uh, Sebastian Gorka, something like that. Sebastian Gorka, yeah, he was a, a, a definitely a, a Trumpist. A, 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 I guess he was a, born in Hungary and he's considered on the on the right, whether it's on, in Hungary or or the states, Sebastian yeah. Gorka, yeah. Well, he re- he 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 said something, and he has more than a million followers. So that's what happens. And and another journalist <clears throat> on the right did the same. So, you know, it was. Um, I'm not going to pretend it. <clears throat> excuse me. It's fun. It is. It's robust. It it isn't pleasant. And I block hundreds of people, and I mock others. Um, but being accused of being a pedophile um, by hundreds and hundreds of people. Now, they didn't read the column, obviously. There's a paywall, anyway, for the Globe and Mail. They read a headline and misinterpreted, but that's not really the point. The point is that they they scream this abuse at anyone to try and silence them and then claim that their freedom of speech is being clamped down on. So, yes, it was uh, an eye-opener. Of course, they proved my point. So, hey, I put myself out there. It's, it's going to come back. and um, But I, I stand by every word I wrote. Michael, let me get to a point that you made earlier, because I don't, I don't think we should be skipping this over. I think, and I'm just paraphrasing here, I think you said that it, it's really easy uh, to get lots of clicks uh, and uh, money, I think, uh, was, was in the sentence as well. It's easy to make money on, on, on the web and in podcasting and broadcasting if you're on the right, uh, especially if you're on, on the fringes of the right, far right. Why do you think that is? You've had lots of time to think about this over the years. Uh, you were definitely uh, considered a, a voice on, on the right. Uh, you were doing very well financially in having that uh, moniker. You lost uh, a lot of platforms, including newspaper platforms, when you decided to move away from the, the far right. But why why does the far right have such a, a stranglehold on, on audiences and dollars? It's a good question. I mean, I was there before the far right as such had developed. I mean, I was I was a conservative who opposed the Iraq war, <clears throat> who opposed the death penalty, who believed in social welfare, who believed in forgiving third world debt. So I wasn't on the far right. I was, well, you were on, you were on that. Let, let's just be more, a little more specific. You're a social conservative. You're very much on the cultural right. And we can talk about balanced budgets and all that economic stuff that I'm, I'm a big proponent of. I've always been a fiscal conservative, but none of that is sexy uh, to the people who are very vocal on the right. They love the culture war. They, they want to be down and dirty in the trenches of the culture war 24-7. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The economic issues are, with all due respect to them, probably too complex and not things that they really, <clears throat> because if they really cared about them, they'd realise that a more progressive approach would help uh, many of them. Um, it's a very good question. The The left was for some time, I think, dominant in media, but that's changed radically. And Fox News and people to the right of them in the US, in uh, in the UK is a thing called GB News, 
uh, over here, you know, we have all these conservative platforms and, and look at the National Post. How that, that used to be a platform for all sorts of views and now it's become very conservative. And I, I think there are people with money who have financed. I mean, there's a publication, I'm not going to name it, in the UK, a magazine and an online uh, site that's doing quite well. And I was a regular columnist for it. And they loved my work, apparently. And they suddenly said, no, you can't write for us anymore. And I know why, because I know the former editor. It was because my politics were not theirs, even though I wasn't actually writing about politics as such. I think there are easy answers given. I think the right has put itself into this uh, mock ghetto where it thinks it doesn't have a voice. So anyone who speaks for them will, will suddenly be lauded and lionized as a, a great champion. And I suppose the cards of history are being reshuffled a little. Um, have I mean, the left has been intolerant in the past, I, and, and it still is to a certain degree. I would never deny that. Uh, but if you set up a, a conservative platform, a media platform, and you make certain arguments that there is a war on tradition, there is a war on men, there's a war on white people, uh, there's a war on straight people, there's a war on religion. Well, by religion, they mean Christianity. They mean conservative Christianity. If you keep hitting these buttons, there are lots of people. I don't, they're not the majority, but they are numerous who will feel very empowered and liberated by those simplistic answers. And there are enough of them, and they're in the millions, certainly in, in the United States, to uh, make people a lot of money. I mean, when I, I wrote a book called Why Catholics Are Right. Now, we used it, it was Random House, and it was really their idea, the title, but it, I mean, we. Oh, if I could sell that number of books now. I mean, we sold huge numbers of, of books. And um, and it wasn't a simplistic book, but the title, of course, was really quite crass. Why Catholics are right. But it hit the button. It pulled the trigger. And so people were buying it in, in huge numbers. And I think if you're more progressive, you don't think in absolutes in such a way. So it, the, and nuance doesn't sell. This is why even talk radio, progressive talk radio has never really caught on, not in the way conservative talk radio does, because simple, very quick, phrase-based answers to things, a lot of people are attracted Michael, uh, less than uh, 25 years ago in the United States, I was told by uh let's call uh, him a sugar daddy, a right-wing sugar daddy, someone who funded a, a lot of people in uh, politics and, and media as long as they took uh, cultural right uh, positions. And I'll never forget, he said to me, if you converted to Christianity and decided to fight for Christian white men, <laughs> you would very quickly become a billionaire. Well, Was he right? Well, possibly. Billionaire is uh, maybe a bit much, but yes, if you can, um, and you don't even have to be, I, I convert to Christianity. There there are sadly some Jewish hardline conservatives now who have done extremely well. I'm not questioning their purity of motive, but they have done extremely well in going over these right-wing talking points. Now, there's a hard core to the right that will never like them because they're Jewish. But I think anti-Semitism is not, central it's there it's certainly there on the far right but some of them have gone beyond that uh, they see israel as an ally and, and so on but yeah there is money to be made and i'm not going to say that everyone who is a right-wing journalist is doing it for the money because that will be simplistic and i don't make those accusations any more than i would call god forbid anyone a pedophile who wasn't but there's something i, I mean i can 
and don't ask me to name them, but I can think of one or two people right now who, yeah, I would say they're playing the game and for, for money and don't believe everything they're saying. Yeah, I think there are. I think we both know who they are, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael, regardless of what motivates one to do something, once one is on that track and receives affirmation from millions of listeners, viewers, readers, isn't it very, very easy uh, to start believing your own crap? Yeah. Actually, I've there's someone in the UK who I feel slightly sorry for because this is someone who initially said something that was conservative, but by no means outrageous. And he was targeted. And instead of saying, well, this will die in 24 hours and it doesn't matter, um, he retreated into the bunker. And of course, you have people in, on the right who say, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. And so you feel celebrated by one side and hated by the other. And he has become progressively more and more right wing. Uh, so, yeah, you, you do begin to, to believe the, the nonsense around you. Uh, that's always a bad thing to do, whatever your politics are. But yes, if you if you see a world that is frightening, and it's very interesting how there are many on the far right, they're very macho, the, the idea of, you know, I'm tough and I can do this. And I'm, but they seem to be so frightened all the time. Um, I'm, I'm 64 years old. You see, the cha- I, I, we have four children. It's a totally different world now. I find it quite lovely, actually, and, and quite beautiful. But that change can be frightening. It can be intimidating. So if they do see that and uh, they hear stories, and some of them are outrageous. I mean, there are stories that the, the, the far right will, um, will publicize. And you think, well, they've, they've got a point. But they believe everything. So instead of saying a moderate person would have a certain position, they believe every conspiracy and every nonsense and anything that's said out there. And this is, I mean, even something like the Daily Mail, Mail Online, which is hugely influential. And there are a lot of very bright and fairly mainstream people working for it. But they will print stories sometimes. And when you look into the story, it's not quite what happened. And you you put the word delay as in you unwrap. And, you know, there's a little core of truth there, but there's far more going on. And the the reality is that most people actually are fairly decent, normal people. And you'll read a story and think, my golly, they're so horrible. Well, are they really? Let's have a think about this. So let's, uh, let's delve into this a little bit. If you really, really wanted to write a piece, regardless of what the newspaper was, or do a sermon for that matter, on how many white Christian males feel rather anxious and insecure these days, and some of them are even quick to anger. I mean, I think you could write a piece and stay within the lines that Michael Korn wants to stay in, because it's not untrue. And if I, if I, if I, if I delve into a subject that is not untrue, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, what, what, what becomes egregiously wrong is taking advantage of that position and going all the way and saying there is a conspiracy out there uh, to not just uh, defy but eliminate uh, the white Christian man and I'm here to fight for him. You know, once once you're demagoguing on that level, yes, both of us can agree that it's egregiously wrong. But I'll just ask an open question here. Does the white Christian male in 2023 have anything to fear? I don't believe it to be a group. Um, first of all, being white and male, uh, this is still a privileged group of people. Being male is still, puts you in a certain position of influence. And being white certainly does. 
um, white working class people. I mean, I think, that, I think there's a valid discussion to take place there. Uh, in Britain, I mean, I've been in Canada 36 years, but where I'm from, the UK, there are lots of uh, articles being written now by left-wing writers, some of them really left-wing writers, saying white working class boys in the inner city have been left behind and neglected because a lot of work has been done to help minority groups and young women. And so you have these kids who have no money, no influence, and very, very few prospects, and they've been left behind. They're doing very badly in schools. So that's something to be discussed, but that's a different issue. Um, this, and it's, it's very American, this notion of the white Christian man. Well, are they really Christian? Uh, it's not for me to judge them, uh, but they don't seem to believe in the core teachings of the Gospels. Um, are they being persecuted? No, they're not. Has power been redistributed to a certain degree? Yes, it has, and it's long overdue. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in parts of the United States of America where black men and women were treated uh, in, in a way that was not that dissimilar to apartheid South Africa. We're talking about in, in uh, maybe just before we were born or even early in our lifetime, actually, and still struggling enormously. And you look abroad and you look at people who want to leave countries because there's war and there's famine and climate change. And, and, and here's where I have so many problems. The people who talk about, for example, on the paedophile issue, I wrote in my column, children are suffering terribly, um, food insecurity and, and migration and exploitation. Well, some of these conservatives, well, no, most of these conservatives support policies that make that worse. Most of the, those conservatives oppose a progressive tax and welfare system in the United States that would help children. I mean, they're vehemently opposed to abortion, but once that child is born, give no help to them at all. They'll live in poverty and probably end up in crime or early death. So there's all sorts of inconsistency. But no, there is no uh, conspiracy. There's no ideology. No one is going after white men in any way at all. But yes, it, I suppose the easy superiority, that's no longer there. Um, suddenly people of color have a voice. Uh, gay people are accepted. All of these things can be threatening to those who have assumed a certain power for generations. Look, the British Empire uh, was in incredibly successful. Uh, they could uh, mobilize huge numbers of uh, white working class men to go and fight battles for them and then to colonize countries. And they would take, they weren't taking the middle classes. These were men from the slums of London and Manchester and Glasgow. And they went and they had a pride in what they did because they were being told, look, your life may be pretty appalling. You're living in terrible conditions, but you're better than those people. You're better than those people. And that's what is happening now, I think. People like Trump, and I would even say some of our leaders in this country, God, I mean, and I never thought that would happen, are saying, our policies aren't really going to help you very much, but we'll make sure you feel better than those people. And that's that's a, a really vicious way of doing politics. Let me uh, delve into that a little bit. Uh, why did you think that what's been happening in Europe, including Britain, in the United States, as far as the advance of the, the, the legions of the, the far right, why did you think that Canada was somehow immune to that, I mean, you know, you know better than anybody, being a writer uh, and, and selling books around the world, that ideas don't have borders. So why would bad ideas stop at the Canadian border? 
Well, I mean, it is a good question because was it naivety? Canada, I wasn't born here. I've spent most of my life here, but I know it pretty well. I mean, we have been for the longest time really a large social democracy on top of a conservative superpower. And even when the United States was led by Kennedy or Roosevelt or, or now under Democrats, it's still a conservative country. The culture is conservative and uh, even their so-called progressive politics aren't that progressive. And we could afford to be something different. And I've, I'd always thought we resembled Scandinavia or Britain more than we did the United States. We might sound like them, but we were different. And our progressive conservative party was, we think of Mulroney and his opposition to apartheid and think of Kim Campbell and Joe Clark. I thought it was different. Even under Stephen Harper, I still thought we hadn't gone all the way, but I can see now how we laid the foundations for it. And your ideas do not have borders, but there are differences within populations. People can be different. We're such a, there are so many uh, immigrant groups to this country. Yes, the United States has huge waves of immigration, but it's never embraced the idea of people being who they are. You, you're, you're all going to become American now. And we're a bit different from that. We might play that game a bit, but it's never really applied. It's been much gentler. I mean, for example, uh, many countries in Europe have issues with Islamic radicalism within their Muslim communities. Largely, we have not had that. Uh, we've done, I think we've been very good in our, in our policy and, and things are working very well. Um, perhaps it was naive on my part. I just thought that the comfort of Canada, and it is a comfortable country to live in, the freedoms we have, and it is a free country, and the decency meant that the far right wouldn't get a foothold. And it is so strange because what they complain about is really just a, a ghost, a chimera. It, it, it has no reality. Uh, they, the idea of Trudeau being a dictator, this man will go in public, be screamed at, be called a pedophile. In many, maybe most countries in the world, the people doing that will be arrested and often be beaten up and maybe even disappeared you know feet away michael, from michael I, I don't i don't mean to interrupt but i mean surely to god as someone like you who has studied all sorts of authoritarianism including of course fascism and as someone who has deeply cared about arresting a fascism how on earth do you intellectually get away with the idea that just because something is not true just because Trudeau is not a pedophile, just because Trudeau is not a dictator, just because, just because, just because, that means that these ideas shouldn't take root. These ideas don't require truth. You, you mentioned earlier, talking about something completely different uh, in terms of uh, articles in the, in the Daily Mail, that a kernel of truth is enough. So if a kernel of truth is enough, maybe one doesn't even need a kernel of truth. Maybe one just needs to have a big lie repeated over and over again. There was a, a guy in Germany who succeeded with that. Yes, I mean, it's Goebbels, wasn't it? Um, you do repeat the lie. And he, even beyond the, the obvious aspects and examples of fascism, you know, America has fought wars based on a lie. Spanish-American war was probably based on a lie. All sorts of things. Uh, tell people they should be frightened of something. And uh, you know about Soviet history and Part of my family came from Russia and some stayed on in the Soviet Union. And you would you would create an enemy out of something that really wasn't there. You're always going to have that. What has surprised me is the number and how quickly it's taken on influence. Fox News, I mean, it has a lot to answer for because this 
uh, ennoblement of the lie. This is now a truth. Uh, I mentioned in my that column that um, in the Globe and Mail about Pizzagate, and when I was researching it, there were more than a million, a million tweets about that. Now, Twitter is just Twitter, and we shouldn't rely on it, but that means a huge number of people were convinced that leading members of the Democrat Party were running a pedophile ring based in the basement of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. And that, I'm not even sure if it had a basement, that led to an arson attack and someone who was about to go there to shoot people. This is what we're we're talking about here. So I don't think it's ever been... Now, social media, of course, is relatively recent. I mean, I don't... I mean, it really is. It's been around for a while, but it hasn't taken on the influence it has now uh, until fairly recently. So it's very easy to, to transmit those lies very quickly. Uh, newspapers, which were edited, people would go through and, and is this true or not? They're declining. I mean, we, we could see in our lifetime uh, when there's barely any printed newspapers left. So things can change very quickly. That is worrying. The radio used to be dominant in, in communication. Well, that's long gone now. Other things that uh, anyone can set up a podcast and they can be wonderful like yours. <laughs> but <laughs> you know how many are out there and how popular they are spreading yeah. disinformation. So, Michael, we have the, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, less than a week ago, putting out a tweet uh, because, of course, is uh, now let people know he and his wife have let people know on social media, on Instagram is where they announced that the uh, separation Agreement. So they're on the on the road to, to divorce. And Justin Trudeau wants to make sure that people know that he's got a great relationship with his kids. I guess I don't know that he hasn't consulted with me on what his motivation was. But he, he had two tweets in the last week, one with his son and another with his daughter. With his daughter, he, he went to see Oppenheimer and that got some tweets. But what really got tweets was saying that he went to Barbie to see Barbie the movie with his son and Justin Trudeau, I guess, inflamed uh, a lot of people by wearing a pink shirt as if it's the first time anyone has ever seen a man wearing a, a pink shirt. We used to call it salmon about 30 years ago, not <laughs> pink. In any case, he's wearing a pink shirt and he's, uh, he's saying that he and his son are on, on Team Barbie. In the early days it gathered 42 million tweets. That is pretty darn rare. You have to be Taylor Swift. You have to have an international following. You have to be Barack Obama to, to get 42 million tweets within a few days. But Justin Trudeau did it. And many of the uh, people who decided to view also decided to reply. And no different than Michael Carnes' tweets, most of the replies on things that are controversial are coming from the usual suspects. And the word pedophile came up over and over and over again. Now, there's no way that you can look me in the eye and tell me that many of the people who are saying pedophile about Justin Trudeau repeating the big lie over and over again aren't making the point to their fellow travelers and aren't convincing them that he is a pedophile. It's 100% true. And the fact that Michael Korn and, and Charles Adler and the, the CBC and CTV and Global deny it, that just makes it even more true. Yeah. Um, I don't post pictures, and this is quite sad. I can't post pictures of my children. We have a grandchild now, our first uh, grandchild. I, I can't do it because when I do, and, and I'm not just intrude, I'm just me. What do I have on Twitter? 32,000 followers or something, I don't know. But not in the same league. But if I post pictures, um, 
they will be attacked and I'm not going to do that to them. I won't post pictures of my wife either. Um, that's the stage it's got to. Uh, I thought they were lovely pictures. Um, and I mean, I'm not sure if it was a wise thing to do or not, but it shouldn't matter if, whether it's wise or not. It's him with his children. And it's very interesting in the, the far right's reaction to Trudeau because I don't want to sound too Freudian, but there's certainly something sexual going on because, and I've, I've, I'm sure you have as well, I've been in a, a room when Justin Trudeau has come in and the number of women who, I mean, he obviously is very attractive to women. I'd like to say the same for myself. I can't, but he is. He's also very masculine. I mean, I think you, we were both at Sun News when he had that boxing match. And, uh, you know, he beat the out of his opponent. He's so you have all these allegedly macho people questioning his sexuality, which is irrelevant anyway. But obviously he's he's straight. Not that that matters. Calling him names, calling him weak, wearing pink. Uh, and here's the irony. One to one, they'd probably be terrified if they actually met him. But I think it, it, it is a certain inadequacy on their own part. Again, they feel emasculated. Uh, they've had power for so long. Look at me. Forgive me if this is a caricature, but look at me in my pickup. Uh, look at me ruling the place. Look at me as the man. I'm in charge. I'm the white man. I'm even more in charge. And they feel threatened by this. They feel threatened by the number of women in the cabinet. They feel threatened by changes that are taking place. And he has become this icon of their hatred. Also, of course, inherited guilt because they so detested his father, even though a lot of them weren't even born and know nothing about what his father did. And so I, I don't think it will be the same with uh, another leader. But I would say this, because also gender is an issue. Um, if there was a woman leader of the Liberal Party, and I think there probably will be quite relatively soon, I wonder what will happen. Because the degree of misogyny is enormous, overpowering. And, that, and whenever people say, my golly, the way... The things people say about you on Twitter, it's just vile. And I've always said, yeah, uh, imagine if I was a woman, because you know it would be worse. It simply it just would be. Uh, but there's a lot going on in this attack on Trudeau, who is, I mean, let's be honest, he, he's a centre-left. His policies are not radical. Our foreign policy is, is hardly left-wing. Economic policy, uh, many on the left are horribly disappointed in him. Um, so he's not some revolutionary figure. And a lot of what he's accused of, it's not even a federal issue, it's provincial. So, yes, it's dishonesty. I think a lot of it is personal. It's visceral. It's angry people. And what so disappoints me, but doesn't surprise me, is that the conservative leadership in this country is not trying to diffuse that in what they think is a subtle way. I think they're encouraging it. So you don't have to be a black man or a brown man. Uh, to look at relatively recent history. If you're looking at those black and white photos, Michael, from the 1940s, we've seen them all. Those people who met at Yalta, one was Stalin, white man. One was Churchill, white man. Uh, one was uh, Franklin Roosevelt, white man. As I say, you don't have to be a racial minority to decide that for the longest time, relatively recently, whether it was known as white supremacy or not, that's such an ugly term. But regardless of the ugliness of the term, how could you not believe, if you're a racial minority, that white men were very much supreme? Yeah. I mean, class is an issue. You know, I'm a European. I do have a class analysis of these things. And 
uh, we have to take that into consideration. Uh, an ethnic minority with a lot of coming from a very educated and prosperous family has a lot of advantages over a working class white person. Uh, but generally speaking, the way that person will be treated by others, if they weren't aware of their background, yes, they they would be treated in a different way. I don't think, I mean, overt racism is one thing, but an, an implicit uh, assumption to be made about people is very common. But power, of course it has. I mean, power still is um, in the hands of a, a fairly select group of people. And we should be able to discuss this intelligently and with affection I mean, as a Christian in, in a loving way. Um, the, the church is dealing, the Anglican communion in particular, with its diversity. And not all uh, Afro-Caribbean Anglicans are progressive on every issue, for example. And, you know, there, there is dialogue to be had here. It's, it's, it's never linear. It's never simplistic. But anyone who says, no, it's not true that white people have had power, still have, they're living a lie. They're simply living a lie. And that is, race is certainly a large part of this. But as I say, that there's more going on than, than race, actually. There's the, the whole idea of self-identity. And a lot of people, when I, the, what was happening in Ottawa and the convoy and, you know, the, the way that we dealt with COVID was, here was a government struggling like crazy to deal with something. Look, uh, CERB or CURB, whatever the payment was, our youngest received it, our youngest child, and she couldn't work. It now seems that she didn't earn enough. She was at univer university for one year, the year before. She needed one year, she dropped out. But because of that, they've now said, uh, you have to pay it back. Well, that means dad has to pay it back. And that's really, really, it's a lot of money I have to pay back. And I think, well, that's awful. But you know what? The government was trying its best to help people. And they did help people. And the lockdowns in my church where I was back then, we would lock, I mean, I remember locking down just before Christmas. And if you want to be completely crass about it, Christmas Eve, uh, for an Anglican church, it's a huge financial thing because you, you're packed out for three services. We, I think rather beautifully, the Darcy said, you can't risk it. Someone could get ill. Someone could die if we do that. We cancelled. We made sure that everything was available on Zoom and people were trying their best. The idea it was a world conspiracy to take away people's religious freedom and control them, a new world order, and inject things into them that would... This is... It's lunacy... But it's a lunacy that it has actually gained probably more support in the past six months than it had before. Michael, allow me to be perspicacious without being obnoxious. I was making the point, and I want you to do more with this. If white supremacy, whether it was called that or not, but white, genuine white power, what now some people call white privilege, if that was the norm for so many years, why should we be surprised? that there is a lot of pushback right now from people who were born in a world where they fully expected that if they were white and male, they would have as much access to power as anyone, perhaps more. Because once again, that was the norm. One can castigate it, one can call it bias, one can call it systemic racism, one can come up with all, all sorts of terms that, that work well in sociology classes and, and, and TV panels that nobody watches. But the point is, when something is a norm, like it or not, when the norm starts to become diluted, many people feel 
left out. I'm not trying to say that they are victims, but I understand why they feel like victims. Well, some people are. Let's just think about this for a moment, because I, I come into contact with a lot of people as, as a priest, all sorts of people from every sort of background, often people who are struggling terribly. And I don't encounter this as often as you'd think. A lot of people do understand, and they're not fools. They do realize that, you know what? Yeah, the world had to change. I see with our children, their age between, uh, trying to remember their age now, <laughs> this is really going to show how old I am. They're, I mean, in their 20s and 30s, and you see the generational difference, and they do understand what is going on. Uh, and people are generally... I'm still optimistic about about humanity. We spoke about Christians too. If you have any idea of the gospel, you'd look within and say, well, hold on, what is the argument here? And perhaps I was wrong. So I can understand some people just being reactive. And I'm all about forgiveness. But those people need to look a little bit harder at the reality of what is going on. Now, if you've just lost your job and uh, you can't pay the bills anymore, and life is really tough. Sometimes you're going to lash out and you could lash out the wrong people. For goodness sake, we know the rise of fascism at a time of depression, economic depression, you blame someone. And actually, it wasn't always the same group. Obviously, in, in Germany, Jews and others in other countries, it, it was different people. But we've developed surely a, a sense of history where we know that actually, it's, no, it isn't their fault. It might be the fault of the economy. It might be the fault of um, very wealthy people who don't really care. But yes, certain reactions are understandable. It's, many years ago, um, I had a big argument with my father about uh, about my personal life, about who I was marrying. I don't want to go into details about it. But I was very angry with him. And uh, I thought he'd reacted in, a, in an unacceptable way. My dad was the child of immigrants. You know this sort of story. He was uh, Jewish son of immigrants from Eastern Europe. He drove a cab in London. He was from uh, Tottenham, Hackney, rough area. Uh, he was a boxer. He was in the RAF when he was 17. Uh, he was clever, but there's no way he could have gone to university from his background. He reacted in a certain way. And I was very angry. About 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, he came back to me and said, Mike, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Anyone can do that. It's not that you get it wrong. We all do. I mean, God, if anyone's been in a relationship, love is never having to say you're sorry. Bollocks. <laughs> it is saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Even if people react in a certain way, they have God's gift of, of, of thought and heart. Think about what you're doing. Think about it. You know what? I'm wrong here. No, I'm blaming the wrong people. I shouldn't be angry like this. So, we are capable of better things. We are capable of being better. And yes, there is a hardcore we'll probably never reach. But I still think that lots of minds can be changed. When do we get the 19th book by Michael Corrin? <laughs> well, I'm meant to be writing a memoir. Uh, I may have to postpone because I've been rather busy. But the, the, the one I wrote, um, The Rebel Christ, that came out almost two years ago now, I mean, it's done, it has done very well. And if someone said to me, you can just hold one one book, one thing up, I suppose, that you've created in, in intellectually, um, it will be that. I'm really proud of that book. And I, I, I mean, I know it has changed people. It's helped people. And 
and, and here's something to really annoy uh, these crazy people who go after me. Every time they do, my book sales go up. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 let's and let's let's make it clear the rebel christ is not a right of center book despite the fact that it's not a right of center book it has done exceedingly well in every important metric including money for michael Carn. can we, well, not can that we say that <laughs> but um people react and they want to read my i mean i go i don't think right wingers buy it unless they want to burn it uh but they you know, they, you see, it's quite interesting what we're seeing there on Twitter. They say these things about me or about you or about anyone else. Did it, does it really affect us? Well, it's not very pleasant, but it doesn't. They, I mean, big deal. You know what? I mean, I, I reported from Northern Ireland. I reported from the Middle East. Um, I used to follow my soccer team around as a rather unruly teenager. Really, I've, I've seen stuff that's a bit scary. These guys are not going to frighten me. It's slightly annoying. So what are they, what are they achieving? They make themselves feel good. They feel I've told that Michael Corrin that he is a paedophile. I've made it, I've, I've made an anti-Semitic comment about him. They feel fulfilled. I say, eh. congratulations, Slugger. Uh, your, your fourteen followers are proud of you, and you've achieved yeah, absolutely exactly. nothing. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely yeah. nothing. Michael Corrin, uh, we uh, always achieve a great conversation when we engage. Uh, let's do this more often. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.